You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Reverend Kat Webb. Kat, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Reverend Kat Webb. I am a reverend of metaphysics, and um, I'm going to be speaking today on intimate partner violence. Um, I'm a survivor. Uh, I'm pansexual, so throughout uh, this interview, I will be using he, she, and they interchangeably. Um, I will not be speaking to the specifics of my circumstances, but rather dynamics and how to discern and move forward through those dynamics um, in a sense of authenticity and choice and power in choosing a healthier way forward for yourself. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us today to have this conversation. We've had a conversation about intimate partner violence previously. It ended up being taken down. It's a very challenging conversation for some people to have. And so I thank you very much for being with us today uh, to share your, not necessarily your experiences, uh, but some information for our listeners about uh, intimate partner violence. So my understanding of intimate partner violence is that it includes physical, sexual, or psychological uh, harm. And uh, we will get into a conversation in the future about what constitutes that harm. Maybe you can give us an explanation of the difference between intimate partner violence and domestic violence. Okay, absolutely. So domestic violence is any sort of violence that you experience inside of your intimate circle. And so that includes children, parents, um, relations, friends. Those are all potential sources of domestic violence. Um, Intimate violence is generally seen as um, somebody who is in a relationship of a Emotional and conjugal nature, I think, is sort of like the general definition of a relationship these days. So I don't really know um, because that that benchmark kind of keeps shifting on what a relationship is and isn't. So intimate violence, I feel, um, should include anybody that you have been emotionally intimate with because there are asexual people out there, have relationships, you know, and relationships could also be with your best friend. You know, those are intimate relationships. You've given a huge part of your heart and your life to a person. And when they respond in a violent way or uh, an explosive way or um, an aggressive way or a shutting down way where they, they've iced you out of their circle completely and you're like just not existing, all of those things inflict a, an intimate wound. And so I think that maybe we need to broaden that definition of what intimate violence could mean. Right. And this podcast, as some of our listeners might already know, is based off of uh, a coloring book called The Social Justice Coloring Book. One of the pages in that is child abuse. So it sounds like, as with every topic that we discuss, has all of these crossovers, these intersectionalities, but it sounds like child abuse might be one of those topics that intersects with intimate partner violence. Absolutely. Um, I am a product of domestic violence. Um, and I think a lot of it also could border on intimate violence because again, you know, I was expected to be the best friend and the, the, the counselor and the, 
the maid emotionally. And so you have all these expectations on you as a child, and they're unspoken, but when you don't do them, you know that you're going to be in trouble. And I think that that's actually what sets us up for the dynamic of intimate violence later on, is the fact that in intimate violence, the thing that always happens is one person is not regulating well, and because they are not regulating well, and they are pushed to a point where they're exploded, um, like their, their window is just so narrow. Their window of tolerance is just so, so narrow that they're explosive all the time, right? And as a child, you're expected to walk in a way that doesn't touch any of their explosive parts. But it's actually the adult's job to manage those parts for themselves first. And I think that to be honest, the generation that my parents came from, they didn't have any of these tools. They didn't understand any of this stuff. And they didn't, nobody really wants to be blamed for something. And so everybody got really good at like passing things off and just saying like, oh, that's just how they are. And, you know, now we're in a place where like, that's not really a good enough answer. We get to decide and discern how we move past these things. Yes, I'm a survivor of abuse, like some serious, serious abuse. I have a skull fracture. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and so the, the reality is, is that I'm still choosing the path of letting love transform my life. You know, I'm still choosing that path. I could be the type of parent to inflict that type of violence on my child, but instead made sure that I got help. I made sure that I found a good path forward. I made sure that I had accountability and community for us. I made sure that we had the things that we needed to thrive to the best of our abilities, despite whatever circumstances we've been facing. So I, I know that whoever's listening to this right now needs to hear these words, but like you can get out of this, but you need to love yourself enough to do it. You need to love yourself and know that you're worth it. Because nobody's supposed to be treated the way that you're being treated right now. Because I know what it's like to be there. And it sucks. And you deserve better. Yeah. I think there's a really good message to send out to, to everyone. And when it comes to that concept of people not wanting to take accountability for their actions, is that maybe an explanation for why people will gaslight other people? So instead of taking accountability, excuse me, accountability, they'll try to throw it back on the other person and say, no, you're the problem. Yeah. And the thing about gaslighting attacks is that, generally speaking, they're accusing you of something that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the weird thing about the gaslighting attacks is that they'll say these weird things about you, sometimes to other people, sometimes to, like, whole communities. I don't know. But, like, certain people are willing to do those types of things, Um I've been following this guy for the last year or so, and he's a, a diagnosed narcissist, and his name is Lee Hammock, and you can find his videos everywhere. And he is going on TikTok and talking about how his mental health has affected his wife, has affected his relationship with his children, and he's telling on himself, and he's telling on his condition, and he's holding himself accountable in a different way. He got help and he's showing other people what those things look like. And so, yes, you can be like 
you know, a person who has done something harmful. We all have done something harmful at some point. The thing is, did you learn from that or did you double down? Did you double down on your crappy behavior or did you make a choice to do something different, to try something else, to have a different type of conversation, to take a minute to breathe, to take a minute to nervous system regulate, to take a minute to do a coloring book page because it does the same thing as meditation. You know, you mentioned coloring books. I'm also creating a coloring book because it, it works. It's one of those things that allows our brain to get into a meditative state. And all of these things can put a shift on a toxic situation. It can put a shift on a toxic dynamic. So say one partner is really explosive in an argument and the other partner is really withdrawn and shut down in an argument. And so they keep exploding and withdrawing and exploding and withdrawing and all these things that keep happening, right? And you get to decide, am I going to keep withdrawing? Or when he explodes, am I going to do something different? When she decides that she's going to you know, gaslight me and tell me that this is different than it is, and I'm going to respond in this way when they do this thing, you know? And so it, it, it shifts the dynamic over time and space. And so we, as human beings, get to choose these pieces. And it's not always easy because the circumstances are sometimes really, really tragic. And you, these people sometimes take your finances because like some of the, these types of abuse also include financial abuse, you know, include other abuses that weren't on the list. Um, and so when you're getting out of these situations, it's never going to be easy. And so it's about strategy and loving yourself enough to put that strategy into place. And so if even if you're doing one thing every day, to advance yourself in some way. And some days what you need to do that day is rest. And that's a thing that you're actually doing is resting. Resting is an action word. Okay. <laughs> so like, as long as you're doing one thing every day to get yourself into a better position tomorrow, then you're a badass boss bitch in my eyes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think, I can't remember if that was a tip that came up on our mental health um, podcast episode, but that's definitely something that I employ for my ADHD is just get something done every day. Just keep yourself moving forward, even if it's just a small little task. I unloaded the dishwasher today. Fantastic. Today was a success. And you know what? And I think that we should celebrate these things because I have been chronically ill my entire life. And I got to the point um, in 2012 where I was so sick that um, I was at 30% on the palliative performance chart. So like 100% is like an able-bodied, you know, physically well human being. Mm -hmm. um, I'm somewhere, I would say at around 65, 70 now, but at that point I was at 30%, which is like pretty close to kicking it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had this moment where it was like, okay, what am I gonna do today to make me feel better tomorrow? And it's like, okay, I need to rest today, um, you know, and, I remember getting to the point where I could stand in the shower again. I had been using a shower seat and I could stand in the shower again and not feel like I felt like the biggest boss ever because of that. Mm -hmm. Because of that. Right. Yeah, that's you a know, great technique. You got to celebrate the little stuff. People don't celebrate enough. No, I think uh, especially in the age of social media, when you're comparing yourself to everyone's perfected image, it's really difficult to say this little thing that I did that, you know, 
isn't worthy of a social media post was still a big success it's for me. such a win mm-hmm. and that's the thing it's like i think social media has really skewed you know that that conversation but that's a whole other yeah. you know episode <laughs> Topic for another podcast, maybe. Back on topic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like as long as people are making one small step each day to progressing themselves into a better situation where they're not stuck in the dynamic where they're being, having to cut themselves smaller and smaller and smaller and whittle away at themselves just to keep the peace. That's that nobody, nobody wants to live in that. That's not a good situation. Mm Um. So coming back to another question that I prepared, when it comes to the topic of intimate partner violence, does that include things like verbal abuse? I think absolutely. Because like as a reverend, specifically a reverend of metaphysics, you know, um, I deal with the interactions of the soul in the everyday world. And, you know, I find spirituality in everything in media, in trees, in you know, the clothing that I wear, you know, like spirituality exists in every single moment and every single breath for me. And so, you know, um, this piece around intimate violence and verbal assault, (laughs) let's, I actually want to call it that. I want to call it verbal assault because it does, it assaults your spirit, it assaults your soul. It assaults the part of you that, you know, questions whether you're not whether you're a person whether you're a good person whether you're a worthy person whether you're a safe person a sane person you know and when we love someone we have this cognitive bias that they want for us what we want for them and that's not always the case sometimes they want something very different than what we want and it doesn't make them bad people per se but like also Go find something else, right? Like if I'm going to an apple tree and saying, please give me an orange, it's never going to give me an orange. So I need to shift my expectations and go find my oranges elsewhere. And if my oranges are my happiness and I'm going to this person and I'm saying, hey, this dynamic is making me unhappy. And they're saying back to me, well, that's your fault. That sounds like a you problem. That sounds like, you know, you're not whatever or you're and they're not taking it seriously, then that's not meeting you in the middle. That's not meeting you halfway. That's not a connection. That is literally doing the opposite. And then because we want to be seen in a good light, we work even harder to gain that approval from that other person by cutting ourselves smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. We get to decide how much times (laughs) we cut ourselves smaller before we're like, no, I'm done. This is not a healthy thing. I'm going to decide to move myself somewhere else that can fulfill me or keep me safe or allow me peace of mind because we deserve those things. Mm-hmm. I've had to fight to learn to want those things, you know, because in my family of origin, that was not accepted. And I think, again, that ties back to that intimate violence. It starts early. It starts with our most intimate caretakers sometimes. And that shifts us into a dynamic of trying to seek out and to prove that we are worthy of love, that we are good people, that, you know, if we stick through it, that somehow we've won something. And that's not the case. We win when we create love in the world. That is winning. And so if the other person's not willing to create love in the world with you, then you get to create love in the world by yourself and find someone else who will create love with you. 
Right. And I, I mean, I know from personal experience, that can be a very hard thing to do to get out of so those hard. types of situations, so especially hard. ones where you're just used to it. It feels comfortable. So you hard. Think, yeah. You know, I, I can put up with this, yeah. but that's not what it should should be. It's not like a putting up with. It's it's finding that connection. Well, I think it goes back to that celebration piece that we were just talking about. It's like, is your partner celebrating you or is your partner tolerating you? If your partner's tolerating you, then are you tolerating you or are you celebrating you? And if you're not celebrating you, if you're not loving you, then you're going to keep putting up with that. And if you love yourself enough to go like, whoa, that was a wake up call. I've been kind of asleep. And, you know, now I have to figure out what my pathway looks like to safety. And for some people that could take years. And so like, I'm not putting any shame on like a timeline on this, but like, honestly, if you know that it's bad, you know, you, you have to start making a pathway for yourself safely out and safely forward and safely away and go no contact and find a path forward when it's really bad, you know? And that's not in every relationship, but when it gets to be at this level where we're talking about intimate violence, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think another important thing is talking to people, whether it's a therapist or a friend. 100%. Sometimes you don't recognize the situation that you're in, but an outsider can recognize it. And I know that was the case for me when I was in that situation. Someone came up to me and said, your relationship's not working. And I, I went, that's very rude of you, you know, and I sort of, I got very upset about it. And then I reflected on it later that evening and went, they're completely right. It's not working. And uh, it can be really helpful to, to have those conversations. Yeah. And I think that that knee-jerk reaction, that like, oh, it's not right. And it's like, oh, well, wait. When you're used to having to put yourself through the mental gymnastics of being in a a toxic relationship, you don't even know what side is up at some point, right? And so it's really important to have those touchstone people who can like be sane with. Unfortunately, what ends up happening in sometimes in toxic relationships is that they will alienate you from the other people in your community. And so therefore... You, you don't have the people like to tell you that message. And so until you have that wake up inside yourself, you know, that something's wrong, I need to get find a therapist or something's wrong, I need to find someone. Oftentimes, like you, you've been alienated from your family or you've been alienated because there's been this weird thing around like, oh, well, your mom doesn't like me or oh, well, your dad doesn't like me. And, and so like, you know, choose me <laughs> kind of thing. And so like, Again, it's those mental gymnastics of trying to keep this person who says that they love you in a place where you actually feel loved. And that's some weird gymnastics. Right. And one of the things that we had when we had this conversation the the first time I tried to have this podcast was around um, people developing their own toxic traits as a result of being in a toxic relationship. Oh, yeah. Meaning both parties exhibit symptoms of being toxic. And this came up during the uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, where Mm -hmm. there was this concept being pushed that mutual abuse had happened. Mm -hmm. Is that a concept? Because some people were saying mutual abuse doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So is mutual abuse a concept that you think does exist? I think so. Yeah. I don't I don't know if it's like I and I don't even think that people are really aware that they're abusing each other. Mm -hmm. I think that oftentimes what happens is 
People develop patterns and patterns shift over time and how much energy people give to the situation shifts over time. Um, Dr. John Gottman, um, Gottman Institute, uh, created this thing called the four horsemen of, or the four horsemen of the apocalypse of the, your relationship general gist of things. And, and one of them is like, you know, you start to devalue your partner. You know, you don't see them the way that you saw them in the beginning. And, that erodes over time and it's sort of like a, like a whisper campaign but inside your own head and it becomes like this uh if if you're a type of person who has decided to double down you know it turns into a doubling down behavior and so the things that initially drew you to that person you're, you're starting to realize are no longer resonating with who you are now and again people level up at different stages and points in time and people decide to do their healing in whatever pathway and trajectory that's going to take and some people choose to not they just choose to double down and so when you have these behaviors that are long established and you have a whole culture that basically says nothing's my fault ever you tend to get into this like mindset that it's okay to just treat people like garbage i remember in the 80s like all of the tv shows were about people treating their partners like garbage. And like, that was what was normalized. And so like, of course, these are the patterns that get repeated, you know, that that like our partners aren't supposed to be there to support us, that our partners are gonna be like flaky or whatever. And like, we we feed into these constructs over time. A lot of the things that we're told about relationships are really toxic. Like even starting as young as Disney, you know, you need to be rescued by someone that, you know, it's okay to kiss someone while they're asleep. You know, all of these things are really scary concepts like that we don't even really see as insidious. Like certain people will be very, I'm going to go, um, to, to the, to the, the argument around surgery for children. Um, but it's like there is zero qualms around people doing surgery on intersex babies, but suggesting that we offer this to, you know, a grown person is somehow offensive. And I think that these concepts are really strange because autonomy is autonomy. Nobody should be manipulating anybody's bodies in any ways that they don't want to be manipulated in. And so consent is really important and we don't teach that to children. And so it's really important that we teach that to children. You know, like, no, you don't have to do this. You don't have to enter into somebody touching your body or somebody hugging you or somebody touching your hair or, you know, like you get to decide what your body connects with in time and space. And like, that's how I've raised my kid. And my kid has like these really dope boundaries and I'm really grateful for it. But like, I can see the peers and the pressure that they're all feeling to like these teenagers to like, you know, send pictures. And that's also intimate violence, you know, where they're being encouraged to like do incredibly provocative things in public, you know. And again, that's always going to be teenagers. That was teenagers when I was a teenager and that was teenagers when my parents were teenagers and that's always going to be teenagers. But what I'm saying is, is that now there's the added, you know, internet and grossness of humans being gross. <laughs> and the staying power that that brings with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think that intimate violence, um, the nature of it is definitely shifting um, in, in what terms it could be taken in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
When it comes to intimate partner violence, can you maybe talk about some ways that that can present itself? Uh, just for people who are maybe still wondering, you know, what exactly does intimate partner violence include? Um, it could be some examples, something along those lines. Okay. Yeah. So, um, intimate partner violence um, can include anything from like derogatory statements. Um, and so, people think that yelling is inherently violent all on itself, but yelling is actually just speaking at a louder volume. Um, violence with words is violence with words, and that's an assault to the soul. And so um, anything that you're being told that is counter or telling you that you're a problem without helping you figure out what the solution could look like together as a team um, or having someone say to you, like, this is the problem, but the only person who should be working on it is you. Um, I think that there's, I think that there's a lack of accountability in that relationship at that point. Um, when you come into a relationship, you're going to want to be equal footing, equal partners. And even if there's a, a dynamic where like one person makes more money, that would be a financial abuse. You know, as long as you're still being treated like equals, that's fine. You know, but if one person is like withholding information about what the finances look like or withholding access to your bank account or, you know, um, stealing your money, like all of those things are also types of, you know, assault because as somebody who's already being in that abusive dynamic, you can't afford that financial assault on top of everything else. So, you know, there's the spoken violence, so the verbal violence, there's the financial violence, there is the obviously, you know, sexual violence. Um, and so that could be like being coerced or being um, completely shut out of that conversation. So like the, the, the door to like even having a conversation about why are we having sex? Why are we not having sex? Um, that's, again, a form of violence against the relationship if the agreement was for us to have an intimate, uh, sexual intimate relationship, then we should at least be able to talk about it. Um, you know, another type of sexual violence could be um, your partner sleeping with someone else and bringing an STI back to the situation. You know, that's also a type of violence. So like, um, there's all kinds of ways, um, you know, there's a difference between cheating and polyamory. <laughs> there's a difference between, uh, having healthy conversations with a person and having aggressive conversations with a person, no matter what type of dynamic you're discussing. So there's physical assault. So like obviously punching, hitting, kicking, um, being pushed, being shoved, the next one is kind of like psychological. So like this one where they sort of like play tricks on you and they think it's funny. So like they'll do stuff like move keys or like, you know, just like weird little things just to make you feel like slightly off balance. And, you know, like we were, like we were speaking before about gaslighting. Um, but just saying before, like, how that can affect and erode your mental health over time. When our mental health is eroded over time, it actually affects our neurotransmitters, which are uh, built in our gut. And so what ends up happening is we end up in this digestive um, problem where we can't digest the information that we're taking in in our brain, and our gut can't digest the food 
that we're taking into our bodies. And so a lot of people who have been abused end up with like really crazy, like uh, GERD, IBS, uh, uh, all kinds of stomach stuff. And so that's because we're trying to make sense and chew through something that does not make sense. It's really strange how once you start realizing that you're trying to make sense of a situation that doesn't make sense, that the inflammation in your body starts to go down. So words do hurt, you know? I know that we were taught like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Mm -hmm. Because the words that we use do mean things. You know, we have science now to back up the fact that I can feel your energy waves sitting here. We have that science. It exists now. You know, we're always in a psychic soup of other people's auras touching our auras. And so we're always feeling other people's things. And so how much of it are we authentically feeling about ourselves if we're in a situation that is toxic to our soul? How much are we able to show up and allowed to be ourselves in a situation where we have to keep being small to avoid hurting people. Because that's what they're telling us that we're doing, is that we're hurting them by simply existing. That's the message that we get back from our abusers, is that we're hurting them somehow by us saying, you know, please don't hit me. <laughs> like, somehow that's hurting them somehow. By saying, you know, please don't treat me this way, somehow you're you know, saying that they're not allowed to exist as they are. Well, yeah, like, if you're an axe murderer, you're not allowed to exist as you are. Like, that's a toxic thing. And I'm using that as a really extreme example. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that <laughs> people can use reasoning to justify anything. And pretty much anybody can learn the words of therapy nowadays. And so most people can talk their way out of crazy crazy nonsense, which just adds to the internal crazy, which adds to the digestive upset, which adds to the inflammation, chronic inflammation, which adds to brain fog, which adds to inability to work. Like all of these things stack on top of each other. And so, yes, all of these things are abusive. And so if you can't have an honest and open conversation with your partner and say, hey, this is what my concern is. And your partner says back to you, okay, so how do we meet that together? How do we tackle that together? That's what you should be getting. If you're not getting that, then that's not a good relationship for you. Mm -hmm. And it, you can label it whatever you want. <laughs> it's toxic. It's not a good situation for you. If you can't even have the conversation and it be met with grace and beauty and love, then what are we doing in this relationship? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, like, again, it goes back to that, like, axiom for me, love transforms. Like, Love, if this person who's in a relationship with, who claims to love me, if they're not willing to transform the world with me, to transform our little tiny pocket of the world, you know, our little tiny pocket of togetherness in these moments, then what are we doing? I don't want to be that. I'm done with that. I have learned all of those lessons. I've leveled up. I have phoenixed. I'm not doing that anymore. And so, it's really about having that internal fire within yourself of realizing this is what I need to do for myself. Right. And if someone is listening right now and thinking, this is resonating with a situation that I'm in right now, some of what you've said, what, what 
advice would you give them? Um, what can they do to maybe get themselves out of the situation or, or seek help when it comes to processing what they're going through? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I said, um, just getting really clear on the types of manipulative behaviors that have been going on that you've been unconscious of. So making the unconscious conscious is really hard. Um, we don't often have an idea of what these things look like until they're presented to us. And so, like, I didn't really understand the inner workings of a narcissist's brain until I watched these videos that Lee Hammock put out. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I see how that brain archetype works. Okay. So, cool. Also, aware. So, like, that, anything that you can do to foster your sense of awareness around what you think you might be dealing with. There are a ton of videos on TikTok. There are a ton of reels on Instagram. There are a ton of Facebook reels. And like, you can find a lot of mental health information, which was previously inaccessible, like, you know, written in doctor's script and written in like, you know, the whole medical jargon. But now you can find videos about it that are easy to digest. So educate yourself. Step one. Learn what you're dealing with and learn what kind of games they're unconsciously getting you to play. Once you know what games they're getting you to play, then you can decide where to start curbing your energy that you're giving to those situations. And it's not that you're giving it purposefully, it's just because you're trying to preserve some semblance of safety and normalcy and not having everything blow up in your face, you know? So you may not even be knowing that you're playing these games, but these are the games that are unconsciously happening in the background. Once you become aware of those, you get to decide where to pull your energy back from. And I suggest you just keep returning your own energy to yourself. So every time they invite you into it, I suggest you gray rock. So they'll be like yelling at you and being like, where are you going? What's going on? What's blah, 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 blah. And like, it's just like you act like a gray rock. Okay. And so you're like, I'm going out. Where are you going? Out. Who are you going with? That is not something I'm willing to discuss right now. Well, I need to know. Well, you're not entitled to that information. I'm going to be leaving now. Right. Because I guess more than that, it's just feeding the fire. Anything else is going to feed the fire. And that's the situation is that like just working on getting your stuff yourself and your stuff and whatever you need to do to set yourself up for safety and success somewhere else is what you need to do when it gets really toxic. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm talking about like worst case scenarios. Most often times when you're in a toxic relationship, you can just say, hey, this isn't working for me. I'm not like interested in doing this this particular way. And you part amicably. But it can be like a situation where it, it, like you have to start making those plans in the background of like having an away bag somewhere else, having a bug out kit at someone else's house or in the trunk of your car or, you know, at your office. Like, so making sure that you're establishing yourself in those ways. The other steps are, um, along with watching videos around deciding, um, what kind of abuse you're, you're the flavor of, of toxicity you're dealing with. Um, I would also suggest people look up videos on nervous system regulation, okay? Because this person is going to keep pushing your buttons and they're going to keep pushing them in a bigger and bigger way until you respond. 
And when you do respond, if you respond with anything other than being a gray rock, then they'll be like, oh, but you just yelled at me. And so now you're the abusive one. And that's called reactive abuse. So basically, they push you to the point where you are now yelling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now they're saying that you're terrible because you're yelling. And it's like, okay, did we miss the last 25 stops where like I, I said, please stop doing this thing. Mm -hmm. And so these different pathways and making yourself more aware of what you're doing and how you're choosing yourself and less about how you're choosing to make them okay and to make them pacified, to make them all right. I think that when you're abused as a young person, um, you get wired in a different way. And so generally speaking, one would have their nervous system on the inside of their body, right? Um, and so that nervous system that's on the inside of your body, it would do things like tell you when to eat, when to drink, when to sleep, you know. Um, but when you're abused, your body stops registering any of those signals. And what ends up happening is your, I feel like your whole nervous system gets wired to your external environment. And that happens to whatever environment you're in. You're just a walking, bundle of 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 tendril of nerves and so the nerves are always trying to make everything okay because they're all out and exposed right when your nervous system gets wired outside of your body you're constantly trying to make the outside world be okay so that you can be okay and i've said this before and i don't know if it's documented anywhere but like i have this this concept that the people pleaser and the narcissist patterns come from the same type of thing they both come from a place of wanting to control other people through their behavior. And so the people pleaser will cut themselves small, make themselves invisible, will um, make themselves not a problem, don't ask for anything ever, right? And then the second that they need something, the people who are used to receiving everything and giving nothing are somehow upset Right? Because this whole time the nervous system has been wired externally to them, to what they need, instead of it being wired to the person and being like, okay, so I need to have connection in my life, right? Because we're humans and we all need connection, but I don't need to have connection with this particular person if they make me feel like garbage. Right. The narcissist controls people through their own behavior by being big and being um, exciting or being uh, like gregarious sometimes like um, and, and offering things. And that's how they, they show up in these like really big expansive ways. But then it's so that you see them in their best light and you have these like really beautiful peak moments and then they control you with that because that that's an amazing moment. And of course, we're going to get back there because this person really loves me, right? Mm -hmm. And these were things that I didn't quite understand until, you know, the last little bit and watching these videos that this man put out. And I was like, okay, so he's talking about uh, how a parent acts to a child as well in these videos. And this also goes back to that piece around the connection to intimate child or intimate violence and domestic violence as a child is that if you are programmed from kind of start to put
put all of your needs aside, you're going to worry that asking for anything is going to turn you into a narcissist. Because that's so, like, contrary to what you were told that you were supposed to be. And then the narcissist is, like, not asking, not having that instantaneous need met and having to meet that own need is so overwhelming to them. And so I feel like they're kind of like flip sides of the same type of damage. And I think that oftentimes people pleasers and narcissists are attracted to each other. Right. It also really crosses over with the conversation we've recently had on human trafficking and how human traffickers will manipulate the people that they're trafficking to make them believe that they're in a, a wonderful situation. They're not being trafficked. They're getting all of their needs met in some some way, even if it's not in a good way. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It's about the narrative, right? If your whole life you've been living by somebody else's narrative about who you are and you don't know who you are, then you're going to believe everything. Like, you're going to believe everything that they tell you. You're going to believe that you're a piece of crap. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to tell you you're a piece of crap and, they're gonna, and you're going to believe it. And that's the reason why is because you don't have a sense of who you are or what you're about. There's never been a space for that to evolve. You know, like your, your ego got so squished, you know, there was no space for that to exist. And, and that's the reality. You know, these pieces of our psyche when we are being abused by someone who's also telling us that they love us, it creates a rift inside of ourselves that we can't quite reconcile. And so we start to think that maybe happiness and joy and kindness are meant for other people, but not for us. Mm -hmm. And that's not a way to live. And so I'm, again, just now, like because I've had a whole lifetime of this, starting to put these pieces together and how all of these pieces fit for me and, um, you know, deciding how I'm going to take that information forward. You know, I'm not going to be allowing behaviors and I haven't allowed them, you know, in my last previous relationships, you know, because each time I'm like, no, that's actually an assault to my soul. You know, thank you. Um, I'm willing to hear what you have to say, but also you don't get to treat me like this. I'm willing to hear you out, but also this thing that you're trying to put on me, this label you're trying to put on me, this, this shame or this pain or this blame or whatever, that's actually not me and my core. And if you're saying that about me, then you don't know me very well. And if you don't know me very well, then why are we being intimate? And if, if we're not being intimate, like there's no love here. Why, again, why are we here? And it may be shocking for some people, especially those people who don't view emotional abuse as being violence, but the most prevalent form of intimate partner violence is psychological abuse. So yeah. it comes back to a lot of what you're saying, um, talking about the ways that people experience intimate partner violence, a lot of those ways that you've been bringing up are psychological manipulation. Like I said earlier, sometimes when you come out of these situations, you're so spun because you don't know what's up and what's down anymore because this other person has manipulated you to that point where it's like, whoa, you know, I remember um, early on in my therapeutic journey, um, I said uh, about my mother, <laughs> like, 
I would have believed anything that my mom told me. Like if my mom had have told me that it was my fault that like World War II had started, like somehow I would have believed that. And I remember saying that really clearly to my therapist kind of at the beginning. And I was like, you know, so like when people get into your head, especially as a young child and they're telling you like, oh, you know, that's not abuse or, um, oh, well, you know, you need to go say sorry to, you know, your dad or else it's going to be bad for me. These things that take us away from our authenticity makes it easier for other people to treat us like crap because we don't even remember who we are at that point. Mm -hmm. We've been so devalued. We don't have an understanding of who we are outside of that other person's judgments or outside of that person's gaze. And flipping the script a little yeah. bit or trying to view this from a different perspective, do you know why people who are abusive engage in that type of behavior? I think it comes down to, I call it, <laughs> and again, uh, these, these are kind of the terms that I work with when I'm working with my clients, but it's like, I believe that we have kind of three parts to ourselves. There is our divine self, which is connected to the universe, source, whatever you want to call it. Um, we have our, you know, human meat suit reality, you know, the, the person who has to pay taxes, the person who has to like, you know, go and, and run errands to the grocery store and stuff like that. And then we have our person that we have when we kind of are not at our best. And I call that our inner toddler with scissors. When you deal with a toddler with scissors, it comes down to a negotiation, if you're negotiating with two toddlers, say that I'm coming to the table at not my best and say you're coming to the table at not your best. Um, we're both in our toddlers with scissors out mode. If one of us can recognize that I'm in toddlers with scissors mode, then I can say, hey, I'm in toddlers with scissors mode. I'm going to take a break from this. And I'm going to come back because I don't want to cut you up with my scissors, right? I can make that choice, right? You could make that choice. Mm -hmm. But it's about being aware when you're in your different states, right? If somebody doesn't believe that they have that state, that they're capable of that state, then they won't recognize that, right? When you take, when you're dealing with a toddler with scissors, you don't just run at the kid and take the scissors away. That's going to lead to somebody getting cut and somebody getting hurt. What you do is you say, hey, I got a teddy bear. Let's make a trade. I'm going to, I'm going to like, this bear is really cool. Let's do this thing. And that's what you're doing in a relationship, ideally. You're saying, hey, this isn't working for me, this particular dynamic where I do this and then you respond this way and then it leads to me feeling like this. Mm -hmm. That's a normal way to deal with it because then your partner can come back and say, hey, I see that I'm doing that and I don't want you to feel that way. And so what can we put together in our dynamic to make sure that you don't feel that way next time? Because this eventually will happen. Every relationship at some point Every person will be a toddler with scissors in every relationship. That does not make someone toxic. What makes someone toxic is if they don't have a good repair game. And what I mean by repair game is, and the reason why I call it a game specifically <laughs> is because we learn best through play. Okay. I'm a homeschooling parent. We learn best through play. So what does your repair game look like? So say that I have this explosive moment and I'm like, hey, ah, I'm ah, and having this moment and I'm lashing out and I'm not being my best self. And I'm saying, this is, this is my inner toddler and it's wounded you. 
And I, I realize that. And I come back to the situation. Maybe I take a five-minute break and say, I'm going to come back in five minutes. Maybe I say, you know, I'm going to need an hour. Maybe I say, I'm going to need, you know, um, till this evening, you know. But having the moment with the toddler is not the problem. Making sure that the game, returning the bear, is the thing that you do next, right? And so you say, <clears throat> okay, that was not great for me. Um, I realized that my toddler was out. My toddler was out because I was feeling scared. I was feeling squished. I was feeling not heard. I was feeling abandoned. I was feeling betrayed. I was feeling whatever, right? And I lashed out. I think next time, what would help me from getting to that place is if I took this step and said that I need this boundary to exist between us. Um, and the boundary isn't set for your behavior. The boundary is set for my behavior. So like, if I'm feeling really energized or charged up by a situation and I went off on someone for no reason, then I get to decide to come back and say, hey, I was a butt face there. Um, can you forgive me? And what do you need to do to feel heard, to feel respected, to feel cherished, to feel loved again? Because that was not a loving moment for me, you know? And generally they'll say something like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. But I think that that's where we kind of run into our problem is because it actually isn't okay. And we actually do need to worry about it just a little bit because if the one person is being charged and the other person is saying it's okay, then that's still not a healthy dynamic because then the one person is still cutting themselves small and you see how that gets back into that people pleaser dynamic. Mm -hmm. So it actually has to be more than just, I'm sorry, it has to be met with a changed behavior. And if your partner isn't meeting that with a changed behavior, then we've got a problem, right? And so if I, so going back to this, the, to this, this statement where I was like, I'm mad, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, okay, you know what? I realized that like, I've got some stuff that I need to work on here. And, you know, I'm going to do a research on like where I can get some anger management skills or I can get some like um, inner child healing or where I can get some energy clearing. Like it can affect all facets of ourselves, the divine self, our meat suit reality self with like bodily inflammation and bruises and cuts and stuff like that. Right. And then, you know, our, our, our soul, our, our like connection pieces. And so, you know, we have these pieces of our story and we get to reframe them and we get to choose where we put them next. And I'm not talking about reframing as in like whitewashing the past. That's not ever worked. You know, ignoring the situation has never done anyone any good. Transforming with love is the thing that actually fixes the situation every single time. I think it's really fascinating to hear you talk about uh, the, the concept of saying it's okay to someone as being people pleasing and being actually detrimental, because that's something that in, in reflection, I do quite often. I just, you know, some, someone is uh, coming at me in a way that is not appropriate. And I just say, it's okay, you know, move on. Don't make a big deal out of it. Um, but in fact, it might be harming that person to not set a boundary at that point in time and say, okay, let's figure out how to avoid this from happening in the future. And that's the thing is like, again, we get to decide how much we're giving to dynamics that are not helpful, mm -hmm. you know, and in pointing stuff out 
I think that oftentimes um, the person who points something out is seen as a problem. And I think we really need to get over that because the person who's pointing something out is pointing it out for a reason. They wouldn't be pointing it out to you. They would just walk away if they didn't want to resolve it with you. Mm -hmm. The person who's pointing something out is pointing it out because they want it to be resolved with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, they're not pointing it out to like make you feel like a piece of crap, hopefully. And if they are, then again, you get to decide if you want to stay there. I mm -hmm. don't think that's a good place. Yeah, and this might tie in or it might not, but uh, I'm curious to know what might cause someone to stay in an abusive relationship or to return to an abusive relationship because I've, I've certainly been in a situation where I haven't taken myself out of one, yeah. um, so I can speak from my own personal experiences, but just in general, yeah. uh, what, what do you think? <sighs> I think that honestly it goes back to not knowing yourself, not believing that you're capable. Um and that's because you've been beaten down with a stick. You've been beaten down with a stick for a long minute. And so, of course, you're going to think that you're worthless and you can't do anything and you can't fix it and you're, you're just stuck there. Like, of course, you're going to think that. Like, my parents are still together. They're really not good for each other. And they haven't been, to, like, good for each other in a long time. But, like, why does she not leave? Because she's afraid. Why is she afraid? Because she was 11 years old before women had the right to have a bank account. <laughs> so, of course, she's scared. Her mom was a single mom. You know, like, this is the reality, is that, like, people stay because they don't know what else to do. They don't know how they would live without the other. Right. So, the fear of the unknown is in some ways scarier than the fear of the change yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fear of, of, of the unknown is so, so mind bogglingly big. And so because people don't know what it looks like, what liberation looks like, what solidarity looks like, what sovereignty looks like, they don't understand who they are. They are believing other people's messages, messaging about them. And until they know who they are, they're going to keep falling for those things. And it really comes back to that, like, know thyself piece. Like, how do you do anything? You know yourself. Why do you want to get to know yourself? So that you're clear on what is yours and what other people are trying to put on you. Hmm. I know what my damage is. I know what. I, my toddler with scissors looks like and I know how to disarm my toddler with scissors and I know how to come back and say, hey, I messed up. I see that I've hurt you. I don't want to be in a position where I am this level of like, Wah! at you. So like, um, I'm feeling that this makes me feel tender. So would you mind maybe trying it this way next time because then I won't feel so overwhelmed and react in this way. You know, maybe we could try that next time. And like, that's it. It's like literally experimentation. If you are with someone who loves you, they are willing to course correct with you moment by moment without feeling like it's a chore or you're trying to manipulate them or whatever. It's literally about you choosing each other in each moment. I don't know if you've seen Steven Universe, but like there is this beautiful character named Garnet who's literally a fusion of two separate characters. And she's been 
um, together for 5,750 some odd years. And the reason why she's been together is because she loves who she is when she's together. Mm. She is her own person. She's made up of these two, two component people, but she loves what they create together, mm. you know? And so like, that's how I treat myself is I fuse all of those parts of myself, my, my divine self, my meat suit reality self and my inner toddler. And I say, okay, where are we going today, folks? You know, like, and I make good choices and I make space for other people to make good choices and to have love transform their life because that's the biggest piece is that if you don't love yourself, you're going to keep getting swept up in other people's crazy maelstrom. And if you're having trouble recognizing things about yourself or about other people and you're in that state of confusion, what are some warning signs that you can look out for to avoid staying or, or finding yourself in a, a, a situation of intimate partner violence? Yeah. Um, I think that when you're in those places of like um, spinning in your head and, and like worrying and worrying and worrying and worrying about like how they're going to respond, what are they going to think? What if I do this? What if I do that? When you start getting into that place of like hyper-focusing on making sure that someone else is okay over your own sense of bodily safety and autonomy and your own choices of like um, your community and your friends and your family and the people that you love, you know, if, if you're feeling like those things are constantly being attacked, I would definitely take a look at that. Mm -hmm. I would definitely take a look and I would be like, hey, why is this person trying to separate me from the people and the places and the situations and the things that I love? You know, what is the purpose of that? And um, I would look at sleeping behavior changes. One thing that I see a lot in toxic relationships is they will abandon their entire community for that one person. And so when you stop hearing from somebody when they're in that new relationship energy, if they don't have time to like slow down and just like talk to you even a little bit during that new relationship energy, that I would say is probably a pretty toxic, um, you know, of course, you know, when you're in a new relationship, you're like, yay, I want to be around this person all the time. They're awesome. But like, um, that's actually really unhealthy and having some space to yourself to connect with the people and places and things that you still love is really important. Um, that's something that I've had happen, um, previous situations. Right. So finding ways to stay grounded. Essentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because again, um, like you were saying previously, um, you know, like having that voice from someone else, like saying, Hey, can you just like take a moment with me and hear something that might be hard and challenging to your relationship and being like, Hey, you know, you can't do that when you've been separated from everyone. You know, that spaciousness to have that friend intervene, it really is left up to the person who is eventually having that wake-up call of, like, am I in an intimate relationship uh, that, that that's centered around violence? And I think that violence to self looks like you're having to cut yourself small all the time to make somebody else okay. And that means cutting your, you know, like, why are you wearing that? You know, where are you going? What kind of friends do you have you know oh you have a new coworker, like they're th and they get jealous about weird stuff like all of those things you have to really challenge because it's like if they love you and they're confident in their relationship with you then 
there has to be a space where both partners can come to the table and have that discussion and say, hey, I'm a little bit jealous about your new coworker. You know, you've been mentioning whoever a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious, like, is this something that, and again, if you're in a loving relationship, that partner is going to come to you and say, oh, wow. Yeah, no, I was just like really impressed with X, Y, Z, but yeah, it's not really a, and so again, like just being able to solve these things instead of spinning out in our heads about them, instead of like feeding into this, like, oh, well, you're cheating. And so therefore I'm going to go do whatever, like without having a space to even have that conversation, that is an abusive relationship. And so if you can't even have that conversation, what are you doing? Right. Why are you in that relationship? Because somebody that you love will want to make you feel safe, will want to make you feel loved, will want you to feel like you can show up as your full self, even if that means being vulnerable about like your fears. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, it, that conversation could go so many ways. Like somebody could say like, oh, you know, like I'm really attracted to, you know, their eyes, but like I'm not, not ever going to look at this relationship any differently. I'm still going to be with, you know, this person if they're in a monogamous situation. You know, I'm still going to choose you every day because like their eyes and your love, you know, what we have is love. What we're building together is love. What we're transforming our world with is love. This dude isn't doing that. He's just got pretty eyes, you know? So like, there's so many different ways that that conversation could go, right? And like, they're all okay. Mm -hmm. They're just being real and vulnerable. But if you're not having a conversation, if you're not able to say to your partner like, hey, uh, I'm not ready to have sex yet. I'm not ready um, to, to move in yet. Um, and if that causes the whole relationship to collapse, then like what? That's not a loving relationship. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Right, it's a conditional relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that, that you know, you know, if, if you're not able to have a conversation, that's your number one, like, warning sign. Mm -hmm. Anytime you feel like you can't speak on it. Yeah. We're getting close to the end of the, the questions that I have for you. So at this point, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you really think is important to bring up? There's so many things that are important to bring up. Um, I'm not really sure where to particularly take this, but um, as a as a reverend in metaphysics, I kind of want to speak about the energetics of the of the intimate partner violence, if that's okay with you. Sure, okay. Go for it. So um, we have an energetic body, and we have um, a soul purpose, in my belief. Um, and so you come into this life and. If you were abused from a young age, um, chances are, like, that part of you has been squished. You've been told that you're a piece of crap and that, you know, nothing you do is ever going to be valuable or matters. Um, the, the big thing for me is understanding that we are a multi-form being. You know, we have our experiences that come from the past, which fuel the inner toddler, you know? And sometimes the inner toddler is filled with delight, you know? Sometimes the inner toddler is like, you know, just running around happy. But often the inner child carries that pain of the intergenerational wounding. And so when we come up against these wounds and these patterns in these abusive relationships, I need people to understand that they didn't just come to this person because they're a bad person who made bad choices and fell in love with the wrong person. These 
stories are multiform and intergenerational. Science is showing us that we carry generations of stories in our DNA, and that's bizarre. Um, so, like, people are remembering the things that have happened to us and playing them out in our choices. So, yes, we are human beings who have free will and free choices, but we also have things that inform those choices. And if we're informed by generations of people who were not able to access their own bank account, um, were told that, you know, um, women were terrible, were told that women were the root of evil, you know, um, then, then that leads to a particular dynamic, right? And we know that's not the case. But we still have to undo all of those internalized beliefs. And so when people are like, oh, I'm a terrible person, I made terrible choices, it's like, you made the best choices with what you had. And now you get to make better choices because now you have new information. And that's where the power lies. That's where the magic lies. That's where the phoenix lies, is that we get to decide how we move forward the, with all of these pieces, you know? It's like, okay, that was not my greatest moment. I'm going to go forward in this way. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to ask my partner what they need. That's beautiful. Going forward, doing that thing, showing up consistently. Doing it once is not, is not fixing it. Doing it repeatedly, consistently, in a way that you feel safe consistently, that is fixing it. That is transforming it with love. And so when we talk about the metaphysics of this, these, these things that we're blaming ourselves for, for like being too much or not enough to satisfy someone else, all of that's coming from other people and we don't need to carry all of that. Not everything is our fault. Not everything is something that every person has to work on. But if you've got toxic behaviors and being a people pleaser is a toxic behavior, <laughs> you know, if you have toxic behaviors, then you have to address them. Find a good balance because if you're off balance, then you're not on your life purpose. You know, you're never far from it. We're always a hair's breadth away from our, our purpose, right? But walking in your purpose and understanding your purpose and living from your purpose is a very different thing if you don't know who you are or what you're here to do. I know what I'm here to do. And so, and I know who I am and I know what traumas I carry, and I know how to regulate myself, and I know how to make good decisions going forward, and I know how to show up with accountability and justice. And, you know, these are good pathways forward. Not everybody's going to choose these same things, but I'm only going to get into relationships with people who choose these things because mm -hmm. they're valuable. I'm valuable. You're valuable. And anybody who's listening to this is valuable. We get to decide where we put our energies. We need to start putting them back into ourselves if we are chronic people pleasers. And honestly, narcissists need to put that back into themselves too if they're, because they need love too, but they don't need it from everybody in the world. They actually just need it from themselves. Both of these things come from a place of self-validation, needing people to be seen and loved. That's the reality. Narcissists want to be seen and loved. People pleasers want to be seen and loved. Seeing yourself, loving yourself, that's the thing that transforms the pain into pleasure, turns the pain into passion, into purpose, into pleasure. And you get to get there. Those, those are the steps, you know? People are capable of amazing things. 
people are capable of so much beautiful change. Like, especially in the trans community, there's so many, like, beautiful souls out there who are just like, this is my truth, I'm standing in it. And I think that that's amazing. And, like, that's the whole thing. It's like, I've been genderqueer since I was 14. And my dad used to scream at me that I was fucking queer and, like, be really mean. <laughs> and now it's like, my my kid is, like, and, and they're, like, little friends. They're just, they're able to be who they are, you know, like, being genderqueer at 14 in the 80 in the 90s sucked, you know, but being genderqueer now, like the, the most recent trans day of visibility was put on by 14-year-olds. Like I was like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. So like I, I'm just really grateful for the progress that we've had in these realms. But also there's a lot more work to do in decolonizing the internalized violence that we do to ourselves to cut ourselves small, to make ourselves fit into situations, to make ourselves, you know, um, more accessible or more whatever. Um, and I'm not saying accessible like disability stuff. I'm saying like accessible, like to make ourselves more, I guess, palatable. Like I don't want to be palatable. I don't want to be eaten. You know, I want to be a person who has a voice and thoughts. I want my child to be a person who has voice and thoughts. And so I'm going to keep advocating for a world where children have voices and thoughts, mm -hmm. you know, and, and. Palatable is subjective. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. You can't please everybody. You know, you can be the sweetest peach and some of you like, I don't like peaches, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that's just the reality. And so everybody gets to choose. And I think very few people who are in a place of believing that they suck because of somebody else's manipulation on their brain and getting in there and telling them that they're worthless. There's so much better out there for these people. I took a long time to get through it and to get here, but like, I know my worth. I know what I'm here to do. I'm grateful that I get to be here to do it. And I'm going to keep doing it as loudly and as openly and, you know, as publicly as possible because we can transform this world. We can. I know we can. We do it all the time. But we have to choose what we love. We have to love ourselves enough to choose ourselves and our world, to choose our companions, to choose our comrades, to choose our allies, accomplices. <laughs> mm -hmm. And on the note of transforming the world, I think that brings us really nicely to the last question that I have for you, which is how can our listeners help to give back, to transform the world, to make things better when it comes to this specific issue of intimate partner violence? As a survivor, like there are a lot of options out there. Um, and so I think first thing that I want to mention is like, look up um, battered support services in your area, um, I think is number one. There's going to be a lot of uh, information online and a lot of these websites are designed in a way that like you can close them quickly and they won't be saved to your browser they will have a, a, a thing that like self-deletes which i think is beautiful there are lifelines that i suggest people use in um in the meantime because like for example trans lifeline uh they can hold some of that space and provide perspective to be like hey um this thing just happened and I need support as a trans person. Um, and they can give you that outside perspective, that outside friend voice that's like, hey, you know, um, you may have internalized that you suck because, you know, your parents abandoned you because you're trans, but you don't suck. And also your relationship 
is unhealthy and you're you're following that and so you get to decide and you know like there are beautiful beautiful tools out there that already exist um there's my ministry which is love transforms um and i am a survivor um of all kinds of crazy stuff um but uh what i wanted to say is that um my work that we do at love transforms is we create spaces for finding our spirituality after being abused and after having these really bizarre experiences um, that we don't really have a context for in our society. Um, oftentimes, um, because of the gaslighting and stuff, we're actually um, manipulated into a place where we're seen as crazy and we're not actually having a... a a mental illness moment we're having a paranormal experience moment and people don't really know the difference between the two and as somebody who's dealt with all shades of this and made sure that i've gotten mental health support for the last 20 years you know like i know what i'm talking about that there's a space where people are needing spiritual support alongside of the tools that exist so those are the things that I can kind of offer right now off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for being on the podcast, for having what is often a difficult conversation. And I hope it's been valuable for our listeners. I know that um, when I was in a relationship that, that was toxic, it would have been really helpful to, to listen to something like this and to sort of figure that out a little bit earlier. So uh, thank you so much. This has been a social justice podcast. Our topic today has been intimate partner violence. I've been joined by Reverend Kat Webb, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.